This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we will be joined by a couple of old friends. Kirsten Sanford of This Week in Science, another public affairs program brought to you on this station. In fact, it's brought to you every Tuesdays at 8.30 in the morning. Kirsten will be joining us in our second segment to talk about her trip down to the AAAS meeting in San Francisco last week. That's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. We will also be joined in segment two through the miracle of modern electronics by Benjamin Jonas Keeling who is physically present at the moment in Washington, D.C., with his new job working for The Voice of America. Despite this handicap, Benjamin will be joining us to do a taste test involving some of your favorite carbonated beverages <laughs> in segment two. And yes, I know that sounds a little odd, but, uh, but we'll, I think we'll make that worth your while. Or die trying. Let us commence this program with On This Date in History, which is March 1st. Of course, every four years... Today would be February 29th. And we were so captivated by a couple of events that took place on February 29th that we're going to have that as an added bonus to our look at this date in history. Let's first off do the real date, March 1st. On March 1st in 1815, after escaping from exile on the island of Elba, French General Napoleon Bonaparte landed in Cannes, France with 1,500 men and began his march on Paris. Unfortunately for General Bonaparte, it appears he arrived more than a century early to have taken part in the Cannes Film Festival. On March 1, 1896, at the Battle of Adwa, the Ethiopian army routs an Italian force of 14,000 men and forces it into a disorderly retreat, thus checking Italy's colonial ambitions in Africa. And on this date in 1961, newly elected U.S. President John F. Kennedy issued an executive order establishing the Peace Corps. Thus, the U.S. government created a force of civilians who would volunteer their time and skills to travel to underdeveloped nations to assist them in any way they could. JFK entrusted the operation of the Peace Corps to his brother-in-law, Sergeant Shriver, who is still with us and is at this moment the proud father of California's first lady, Maria Shriver. And in, and in what is one of my favorite wordings, I think, of any description of, of this date in history we've ever done, it's noted that on March 1st, 1966, the Soviet space probe Venera 3 inadvertently collides with the planet Venus, thus becoming the first spacecraft to reach the surface of another planet. <laughs> Venera 3 had been launched to analyze the Venusian atmosphere which it evidently did only in the most transitory fashion. But uh, on our special bonus of, if it were February 29th, we have the two following marvelous items. On February 29th, in the year 1288, a Scottish law took effect allowing women to propose marriage to men on that date. It also required men to pay fines if they refused. Now, we must confess we made inquiries to our our Scottish correspondent, Mr. Jeffrey Callison, over at Capital Public Radio, and he said yes, he'd heard of this, but he couldn't remember the details. So in a future program, we're going to revisit the subject of Scottish women proposing to men. 
But uh, on February 29th in the year 1504, Christopher Columbus, marooned in Jamaica with a mutinous crew, which was during his fourth voyage to the New World, used a lunar eclipse to frighten the natives into providing them with more food. Columbus knew that European astronomers had predicted a lunar eclipse that night, so he told the natives the moon would lose its light because they had refused to share food. As I'm being followed by a moon shadow, moon shadow, moon shadow, leaping and hopping on a moon shadow. And speaking of a moon shadow, or, or more properly, the Earth's shadow, which the moon passes through, will produce the spectacle of a lunar eclipse. Unfortunately, it takes place at about 11 p.m. universal time, which means that where we live here in California, it'll be daylight. We'll be facing the wrong way. But for our listeners in Europe or Africa, you should have a ringside seat for this event. We hope you'll send us an email letting us know how it turned out to info at radioparallax.com. And in other news involving different time zones, we would note that to save energy, daylight savings time is going to begin four weeks earlier this year, on March 11th. According to the Washington Post, technicians are warning of possible problems because many computer systems are programmed to change the time on the old April date. So spring forward this year on March 11th. And don't worry, we'll remind you next week. Our quote of the day comes from Benjamin Franklin, who once said, if you would persuade, you must appeal to interest rather than intellect. Which we find somewhat sad but true. And our uh, joke slash quip of the day comes from our revisit to the, the Esquire magazine's Dubious Achievements of the Year 2006. And this serves as follow-up to last week's discussion with David Wallachinsky about the world's 20 worst dictators. Uh, number 20 in that list, by the way, was uh, the man this centers on, Vladimir Putin. According to Esquire, last March, researchers revealed that in the mid-90s, Russian President Vladimir Putin plagiarized about 16 pages, including diagrams and tables, from a 1978 textbook by two University of Pittsburgh professors for an economic dissertation while he was in graduate school. The quip, of course, comes from how Esquire captioned the item, which was, hence all those perplexing references to the Steel Curtain. And for those who don't get the joke, the Steel Curtain was the nickname for the Pittsburgh Steelers, I believe, defensive line. But then again, we're not positive it wasn't the offensive line. At any rate, it was one of the lines. Our statistic of the day comes from the New England Journal of Medicine, and uh, yours truly does find this disturbing. According to the New England Journal, 14% of doctors in the U.S. say they don't think they're obligated to tell patients about legal medical options to which they morally object, such as birth control or abortion. And yes, I have worked alongside colleagues in various settings like urgent care where when patients come in very upset having just discovered that they're pregnant and my colleagues uh, do not mention the option of abortion which maybe isn't quite as bad as refusing to mention the morning after option to, to a woman who's been sexually assaulted, but uh, it's still pretty bad. All right, on a lighter note, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly.
according to The Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back, a very good week indeed for Raymond Snowfer Jr. of Minnesota, who won the $25,000 state lottery two days in a row. A bit of luck that officials say defied incalculable odds. Last month, however, there was a really bad week for going for broke after Andrei Karpov of Murmansk, Russia, ran out of money during a poker game and bet, quote, ownership, unquote, of his wife, Tatiana. He lost the bet to opponent Sergei Brodov. Tatiana has since divorced Karpov and married Brodov, whom she describes as handsome and charming. And this last week was apparently an ugly week for labor-saving devices after Bill Lawfer of Pennsylvania invented and built a robot to clear his driveway of snow only to have his wife, Sue, complain to the national media, I want him to get more exercise. He's always controlling everything by remote. And in an oldie but goodie item from the Only in America file, we have the following. In 1965, writers of the 1951 song, Super Califagilistic Expialidogis, sued Disney over the Mary Poppins song, Super Califragilistic Expialidocious. The songwriters lost. And we hope that you have been following uh, on PBS, the Frontline series on News Wars. We mentioned that uh, Rick Cushman of the Bee had uh, bird-dogged this one for us. Um, well, for all of us, by writing about it in the paper. We hope you're taking it in. Lowell Bergman's doing a great job, excellent series, and we'll probably have more to say about it upon its completion. Oh, and you may want to check out uh, Terry Gross's interview with Bergman, which uh, she conducted uh, last Tuesday. And uh, when we transitioned from 2006 into 2007, we made mention of uh, the Atlantic Monthly. It's, a, it's an excellent magazine in general, but they had a fascinating article about those who made America. Following the lead of Michael Hart's landmark book, The 100 Most Influential Persons in World History, the Atlantic cited the 100 most influential Americans of all time. Frankly, we did not agree with their first choice, Abraham Lincoln. We think that George Washington was much more influential in American history, but, um, but uh, that's really neither here nor there. It was one small sidebar that, uh, that caught our attention. In trying to evaluate influential architects, Michael J. Lewis, who is a professor at Williams College and author of American Art and Architecture, cited a fictional character among his choices. Lewis chose Andrew Jackson Downing, Daniel H. Burnham, Morris Lapidus, Frank Lloyd Wright, and the fictional Howard Rourke. We thought that analysis was worth quoting. It may seem odd to list a fictional character, yet the hero of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead profoundly influenced American architecture by changing the public image of the architect. Before Rourke, the architect was considered a mere service provider, a rather bookish sort who knew about cathedrals and dry rot. Rourke, by contrast, was a leviathan of ego and will. 
his creativity deriving from his existential confrontation with the universe. In him was born the debased architectural culture of today, a wasteland of celebrities, each cultivating his own distinctive signature style. Whatever Rourke's literary legacy, his architectural one has been an unmitigated disaster. And you know, we just love writing like that. And on a very long-term follow-up, we would note that we have been doing this show, well, in June it'll mark our fifth anniversary. In one of our very first shows, we talked about some cartoons that were on television comparing and contrasting uh, The Simpsons with its predecessor, Rocky and Bullwinkle. And I remember specifically noting, uh, with some jocularity, uh, the newspaper that was often cited in the Rocky and Bullwinkle series titled The Picayune Intelligence, which we thought was a pretty funny condensation of the New Orleans Times-Picayune, and I believe it's the St. Louis Post-Intelligence. But this correspondent discovered a few, uh, a few nights ago where it was the J. Ward cartoon people got that joke. It comes from a W.C. Fields movie, The Bank Dick. And I feel compelled to mention that because uh, when I was in college, back in the Pleistocene era, people loved going to see movies by the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields, and you don't see that too much anymore. And I would say that uh, this is a sad thing, and that if you have not taken in a W.C. Fields feature, or that of Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo, well, give it another look. And last, uh, last November, an item appeared in New Scientist magazine, which uh, we've been wanting to get to, but we needed a little help. This article was about snow clones, which is the word for phrases that linguists have begun collecting uh, since a few years ago, wherein uh, newspapers will list a certain key phrase based on something that came before it, something like, China is the new Japan playing off of 40 is the new 30, or much ado about ballroom dancing, which is a recycling of, you know, much ado about nothing from Shakespeare. Evidently, Jeffrey Pullum from the University of California, Santa Cruz, one of our sister campuses here in the UC system, uh, has really been putting these together into a linguistic blog. I think uh, 100 years from now, people are going to be puzzling over some of these entries, uh, not knowing the original reference. For example, these aren't the incriminating memos you're looking for. It's not going to make sense unless someone knew about the Star Wars line uh, from the original picture where Obi-Wan Kenobi says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And if uh, future historians are not familiar with uh, the story of the slightly deranged astronaut who recently made the trip from Texas to Florida in diapers to attack her rival, well, none of the following headlines are going to make a great deal of sense. Or even if they do know the story, they're going to need some cultural references to put these snow clones in perspective. Uh, such as the New York Post headline, She's Astro Nuts! Or the New York Daily News' Dark Side of the Loon. Or the Washington Post's Astronauts Gone Wild. Or my favorite, the International Herald Tribune's When the Right Stuff Goes Wrong. Anyway, we're going to have to see if we can get our good friend uh, Dr. Andy Jones of UCD's English Department to talk a little bit about snow clones in some future program. And uh, you pretty much knew this had to happen in the wake of all the controversy over uh, Mary Magdalene uh, supposedly perhaps being secretly married to Jesus and having children, the whole thing about the Da Vinci Code, etc. Someone naturally had to go just one step further. Dateline Jerusalem. 
The Lost Tomb of Christ, which the Discovery Channel will run on March 4th, argues that 10 ancient ossuaries, small caskets used to store bones, discovered in a suburb of Jerusalem in 1980, may have contained the bones of Jesus and his family. Uh, this, is, this is rather preposterous, but we loved the comments by Simcha Jacobovici, the Toronto filmmaker who directed this, quote, documentary, unquote. He said the implications are huge. But, said the director, they're not necessarily the implications people think they are. For example, some people are going to say, well, this challenges the resurrection. But I don't know why, if Jesus rose from one tomb, he couldn't have risen from the other tomb, Jacob Avicii told Today magazine. Well, now, we admit that we are not theologians on this program, but we feel fairly confident that if you physically arise from the dead, go directly up into heaven, not pass and go, not collecting $200, then you cannot also leave a box of dusty bones back in a tomb. But uh, you know what? We're going to have to bring back uh, Dr. Allison Kudair, who spoke to us uh, last year on some religious matters. Uh, uh, we're going to have to bring her back to talk about this one and the following item. On Tana Island in the Pacific Island Republic of Vanuatu, one of the world's last surviving cargo cults is celebrating its official 50th anniversary. The John Frum movement worships a mysterious spirit that urged natives to reject the teachings of the Christian church and to maintain their traditional customs. This cult was reinforced during World War II when U.S. forces landed with huge amounts of cargo, including weapons, food, and medicine. Villagers believe the spirit of John Frum sent the U.S. military to their South Pacific home to help them. Devotees say that an apparition of John Frum first appeared before tribal elders in the 1930s. He urged them to rebel against the aggressive teachings of Christian missionaries and instead said they should put their faith in their own customs. Two topics worthy of future discussion. All right, in news involving the McDonald's Corporation, we have the following. I guess you might call this the good news. According to Consumer Reports magazine, McDonald's coffee tastes better than Starbucks. The fast food chain introduced a heartier blend last year, and taste testers preferred it to Starbucks brews, which they described as burnt and bitter enough to make your eyes water. However, from the bad news file on McDonald's, we have the following. Evidently, the, the Prince of Wales, Charles, has thrown his weight into the debate about eating healthy. Evidently, the prince was in Abu Dhabi attending the launch of a public health awareness campaign aimed at, aimed at fighting diabetes in the United Arab Emirates. And evidently, he asked a nutritionist that he found there, Have you got anywhere with McDonald's? Have you tried getting it banned? That's the key. Noted the Australian in conjunction with this story. In August of 2005, Prince Harry popped into a McDonald's for a buy one, get one free meal. He's reported to have bought two chicken burgers and a strawberry milkshake, eating the meal on the pavement outside. In response to the prince's remark, a spokesperson for McDonald's said, This appears to be an off-the-cuff remark. In our opinion, it does not reflect our menu or where we are as a business. We need to take a break shortly here, but would like to note that um, March 5th, next Monday, marks the 25th anniversary of the death of John Belushi.
It really doesn't seem possible that a quarter century has passed, but it has. So let's go out with one of uh, John's high points uh, from the album Briefcase Full of Blues. His performance singing the lead on I Got Everything I Need, Almost. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. As promised at the top of the show, we will now go to one of our fellow public affairs hosts here on KDVS, Kirsten Sanford, who hosts This Week in Science every Tuesdays at 8.30 in the morning. Welcome back, Kirsten. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back, and it's high time. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while, hasn't it? Yes. Now, uh, you went last weekend to the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in San Francisco? I did that, yes. Well, I know that because you talked about it in your show. (laughs) But you haven't talked about it on ours. So uh, let's give the listeners a little bit of a a flavor for what that was all about. Their main theme this year was sustainability and um, how we can use science and technology to allow us to maintain the well-being of of people around the world. And so it was just a really well-rounded conference all, all around. I'm guessing there was a lot of global warming. There was a lot of global warming. There was session after session on global warming. But luckily, that's not all that was there. Um, There were a lot of good, you know, much more positive notes as well. (laughs) Well, was there any hope on the global warming front? I know it's a lot of grim news, but anybody have any good news? I think on the good news side of it are the new technologies that are going to be made available, um, going to be coming available more readily for people who want to use green power so um, advances in solar energy, um, in wind energy. There were a lot of people there talking about biofuels. There's a lot of positive stuff in the terms of what people are developing for you know, ways that we can become less carbon dependent. With Al Gore winning the, the Oscar here this last weekend, I hope that uh, we'll see more of it in the mainstream. Uh... Yeah, I hope, I hope so, too. Um, although I'm a little bit... Uh, I guess there was a report, there was a 46-state poll that just came out recently that says that 13% of Americans have never even heard of global warming. <laughs> That's, that means 40 million Americans have no idea what the words global warming mean. 
You know, I'm waiting for someone to do that poll on how many realize that the Earth is not flat. Because I, I bet, I bet it's, I bet it's out of single digits. <laughs> the Earth, it's not, you know, at six thousand years old. Well, yeah, I mean, we probably shouldn't want to go there today because that no. would, would fill up a whole, a whole hour. But uh, um, there is one, one topic I'm keen to ask, and I'm not sure whether you had any, uh, any contact with this one, but I read that uh, Rusty Schweikert was there, the Apollo Nine astronaut, and he's talking a bit about. Um, this asteroid in 2028, Apophis, which is a concern. I didn't make it to that, no, but I, I do know what you're talking about. They're planning on doing some kind of a, a space tug. Yes. Just kind of move it out of the way a little yes. bit. Yes, the non-Bruce Willis approach. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try maybe not blowing it up exactly. into lots of little exactly. pieces. Exactly, right. I think that uh, you or I or both should get Schweikert on, on a KDVS in the future, because I bet he's got some interesting things to say. I think it would be great to talk with him, yeah. All right, well, we'll mark that on the to-do list. Okay. <laughs> what, uh, what, what was the most fun thing you saw there at the conference? What was the most fun thing? I think one of the most fun uh, sessions that I went to was a group of quantum physicists, quantum theorists, sitting down and talking about string theory. And there, oh my. See, there were, there <laughs> were two, two people who were kind of pro what they call the anthropic principle. Mm-hmm. which is basically, you know, that life exists here in our universe because all of the factors that allow it to be so are just so. And then there was another guy um, who was kind of the detractor from the group. So it was really interesting to hear all of these expert opinions on, you know, this really kind of fascinating question of, you know, where did our universe come from? Yeah. Who are we? What are we? Where are we? You know, and to have these people who really that's all they think about <laughs> sit down and talk about what, what, they're, what they're doing. That was, that was really neat. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned this because I've been wondering what to do with this article that I have in my hand right now. And I just want to bounce this one off you. This came from New Scientist, which, which, uh-huh. which I know you love to quote from, as, as do we on, this, on our respective shows. But they went out of last year uh, with, with, with the following, addressing string theory. Let me just quote from it. For decades, it's been the main contender for a unified theory of physics. But to some, string theory is beginning to look less and less like a foundation and more and more like a folly. Intricate, beautiful, and ultimately useless. <laughs> was, <laughs> was that viewpoint there presented? Uh, some people are very skeptical yeah. that string means anything. Yeah, as far as string theory being you know, the, dominant, the dominant paradigm in um, theoretical physics right now in terms of the possible equation that will be the the solution to everything and bring uh, quantum physics in line with particle physics. There's still like tons of people on the side of string theory, but there definitely are becoming more and more detractors who are uh, looking at other possible, possible ideas. So I think it would be interesting to learn more about what those ideas are and find out why maybe they're not getting as much airtime. How about uh, how about dark energy and dark matter? Was any talk about that or? Oh yeah, people were talking about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> any 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 uh, possible resolution as the mystery of where most of the universe is? <laughs> uh, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think they're still waiting for a few experiments to be done. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you'd, you'd be able to attend some of the Ig Nobel uh, oh. events, but you weren't able to make any of those. No, I wish I could have made those. They sounded like so much fun. There was a, a really, really fun-looking roster that they had put together. 
lots of people who had done some interesting but maybe questionable as to why they actually did it research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this came from Mark Abrams' uh, book, The Ig Nobel Prize. I guess he's written two books, but I've only got the mm-hmm. first one. And I, I know Mark was there, but you didn't, you didn't happen to chance upon him, did you? No, I didn't. Oh, too bad. Well, anyway, in this book, he describes the, I believe it's the 1995 Ig Nobel Prize for Chemistry. They awarded this to George Goebel of Purdue University for his world record time for igniting a barbecue grill. Three seconds using charcoal and liquid oxygen. Oh, God. <laughs> I just, I read this account, and Goebel was describing it, saying, the procedure is simplicity itself. He asks someone to throw a lighted cigarette on the grill, then he pours three gallons of liquid oxygen onto the cigarette. Oh, my gosh. Spectators are kept at an almost reasonable distance. Don't stare at the flame unless you squint, he advises. It's like the sun. <laughs> And they describe how a cheap grill is entirely consumed by this method. Once, a Weber might survive two or three such starts. I thought that was deserving of an Ig Nobel. Oh, absolutely. But, but no, <laughs> I'm just, I just have to remember not to tell my husband about this one. <laughs> does he have, ac- does he have I, I, access to liquid oxygen? Oh, he'll find a way. I know. <laughs> And then we'll be minus one barbecue. <laughs> well, I, the advice from, from Abrams is start with a Weber, because it may, it may has, a, has a chance of withstanding the, uh, the sun-like uh, so, solar heating. I love it. Um, did you just go to the AAAS just out of your own interest, or was this part of a, a work thing? It was a little bit of both. Um, I went because I'm starting a, a, a new video project, and so I went to interview a few people on camera. So I got some really great uh, on-camera interviews of some pretty interesting scientists. A uh, roboticist from Stanford who's working on um, the the DARPA challenge, where they drive the ro- the robotic cars drive through the desert. Yeah, yeah. And they rate the great race basically. Talked to a computer programmer who does CGI graphics for uh, Hollywood movies. And I talked to Monty Thompson. He's a uh, paleoglaciologist. So he climbs to the top of the tallest mountains in uh, the mid-equatorial region yeah. and uh, takes samples from the glaciers there. He was, he was pretty cool. So a lot of really interesting people I got to, t- got to talk to there. And then on top of it, uh, I was actually invited to speak at a session, Science Writers on Science Writing. So oh, good. I got to, yeah, I got to talk about what I do, and people actually believed me. <laughs> 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 and yeah, I imagine you corralled a few future guests for This Week in Science. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Hopefully there's going to be uh, a number of really interesting interviews coming up. Well, can you give us a teaser on who some of those may be? Uh, one person is uh, Nina Jablonski. She works on the question of how primates have became extinct over the years, how different primate species died out, one of them, namely the Neanderthals. So uh, she looks at various aspects. Uh, archaeologically, you can find from their lifestyle. She also looks at bone records and tries to determine exactly uh, what could have led to their demise. That's great a mystery. What? Who killed the Neanderthals? Does she have a theory? <laughs> You'll just have to wait for the interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess so. I guess so. All right. And any others uh, that, uh, that are particularly interesting? I mean, I mean, they're, they're all particularly interesting. Oh, but, yeah, uh, they all are. Um, I'm trying to figure out, remember, who's on deck? Um, probably sometime in April, I'm going to be having 
somebody to talk about um, additives in various products that we use and um, that act as uh, as estrogen, estrogenic compounds, Ooh, ouch. and might be affecting uh, human reproduction and other animal reproductive um, abilities. And it's really surprising. This one, uh, there's a re- there's a report out on it right now called bisphenol A, actually exists and is, is put into quite a number of of common household products. Yes, yes, yes. Your shampoos. Yes. All that kind of stuff. And as it breaks down, or the, the product that it comes from, it, it actually acts as an estrogen and so um, might actually increase um, cancers or even mutations within, within our DNA. That's a must-listen-to must, must listen to show. I find that yeah. stuff very, very ominous and, and of course, interesting, but uh, yeah. scary, <laughs> scary. It is kind of scary to think about, you know, all the stuff. And I think this one compound um, industrially has something like 60 different names. So even though you might want to look, at, look for it in your products, you might find it in one or two products, but you won't notice it in, you know, four or five others because it's under completely different names. Wow. Yeah. So well, it's, yeah. It's something that, you know, people need to be more educated about, but at the same time, it's really fascinating what we're doing to ourselves. <laughs> yes, indeed. And in, in, in a very similar vein, let me let me take a second to forward promote uh, an interview we're going to hopefully do in the next, uh, next week. Steve Etlinger, the author of Twinkie Deconstructed, subtitled My Journey to Discover How the Ingredients Found in Processed Food Are Grown, Mined, Yes, mind and manipulate it into what America eats. So that that should be uh, that should be curious. Yeah, am I manipulated? I think we all are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's all that wonderful packaging. All right, well, Kirsten, it, it's been a pleasure uh, having you back, and and I want to say that uh, I was inspired, and I think you were too, by this this email we were sent from the UK from John, who said that he heard last week's promo on the show, was looking forward to hearing both of us on the same program. So, John, I hope this was, uh, this was okay. Yeah, I hope so, too. It was a lot of fun. All right. Kirsten, thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That, of course, was TWIS's venerable host, Kirsten Sanford. This Week in Science can be heard every Tuesdays at 8.30 a.m. right here on KDVS. About a month ago, we were... Uh, Pleased to have Benjamin Jonas Keeling, now of the Voice of America, uh, come on the program and talk about, uh, well, a number of things. But one thing we wanted to have him do before he left was to do something we did on the Insight program, which was to compare the Coca-Cola made in different countries. And here to help us do that is our expert taste tester, Benjamin Jonas Keeling. Welcome back, Benjamin. Thank you, Doug. Now, this is radio. <laughs> I love it. This is what radio was meant to be. This is the cutting edge. <laughs> I love it. Uh, on Insight, people may not have heard, about a year ago, we were talking about high fructose corn syrup, how they've changed the formula of Coca-Cola. Um, a lot of people were importing Mexican Coke because there's demand for the real thing made with cane sugar, and we sampled it on the air. At least you did and gave us the verdict. And you're now willing to do the same for us on KDVS. Absolutely. And uh, and you and you actually fetched some, some of the product that we're going to test right now. Oh, that's right. In November, I was in Hungary, and I brought back a can of Hungarian Coca-Cola for this very purpose. <laughs> and we and we appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. So uh, following your lead, when I went down to Central America, I brought back some Costa Rican Coca-Cola. Fabulous. So Who we... knew these two cans would ever meet each other? <laughs> Mr. McMillan has uh, labeled three different uh, glasses, A, B, and C. 
One is the American Coke, which is made with high fructose corn syrup, okay. and the other two, mm-hmm. well, the Costa Rican is is made with cane sugar. Did we check the label of the Hungarian Coke? I can't read it. I, I don't know what it says. <laughs> it's in Hungarian. <laughs> well, I guess then that we have at least one of these samples, which is sweetener indeterminate. That would be the Hungarian Coke. <laughs> All right. Well, um, shall we do this? I have I have my Coke. You have your Coke. Shall we Shall we just kind of go through this? Absolutely. Should well, we start with A? Let's go with A. Okay. A tastes okay to me. Tastes like Coke. Yeah. You know, Doug, they all taste like Coke to me, but I can tell differences between them. No question about that. Oh, well, you're, you're stepping ahead of me. I guess I better okay. swill some B and C. Oh, sorry. Am I not <laughs> doing this right? No. <laughs> well, as, as I'm sipping, what's, what's your preliminary reaction? All right. Well, we have three cups in front of us, right? Yeah. I'd say uh, B is the fizziest, A is the sweetest, and also the most familiar to me. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to target A as the United States one, and then C is the dullest. That's my reaction. Uh, This is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. It's hard. No (laughs) question. These taste more similar than they do different, that's for sure. Well, that's, um, that's good news for whoever's in charge of these bottling plants. Um, I I believe that of of these three, C tastes flatter to me. It doesn't quite have quite I, the same. Um, I concur. C a, was the dullest to me. Well, but A and B are good. I'm I'm leaning toward B being the most authentic, the most okay. what I'm used to. Okay. Although A sounds pretty good too. So I guess we should guess as to what we think we're drinking. Okay. Well, I'm going to say A is uh, from the United States, and I'm going to put B as from Costa Rica, and C is from Hungary. All right. Well, I think the most authentic one is B, which I'm pretty sure would be the sugar stuff. So I agree with you. I'm going to guess that B is Costa Rica, but I'm going to flip it. I think the flattest tasting one, the most bogus tasting one is going to be the U.S. Coke because it's got phony syrup in it. And I'm guessing the Hungarian one is A. Very good. So we both agree on B, but we're going to flip A and C. May the best man win. (laughs) We should note for the record, Mr. McMillan agrees that B is the best tasting of these trio. Mm-hmm. And we all agreed on that, right? We do. We did. Okay, good. So what's the verdict? All right, well, um, A is indeed the United States Coke. Okay. So I got that one right, Doug. Okay, you did. <laughs> Does that mean I can be hosting host of Parallax next yes, week? Yes, exactly. Thank exactly you. what it means. And uh, B would be Costa Rica. Aha. That means I'm hosting Parallax for two weeks <laughs> in a row. And C would be the Hungarian Coke. That means I'm the new host of Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. (laughs) But let's reiterate what this means. All three of us agreed the best tasting drink was B, which is Coca-Cola manufactured in Central America, which we're certain contains cane sugar. So it would certainly appear that cane sugar makes a big difference in the taste of Coke. Yes, it does. Now, we, we disagreed on what might be B and C, but we all thought that A was a step down. So right. American Coke is a step down by what I'd say universal agreement. Yes. But the question is, what's happening to the, to the, to the quality control in Eastern Europe? <laughs> yeah, that was the worst tasting one, wasn't it? I don't know. I, this means another trip to Hungary. It, and bring back, yes, bring back, we'll have to sample this once again. But it does, it does show that you think you're getting the same product all over the world, and I'd say uh, pretty close. Pretty close. Subtle differences. But not exactly. Well, I think we have proven m- my thesis that Coca-Cola uh, made in, in Central America is your best bet, but it does appear that you have the more discriminating palate. Thank you, Doug. Finally, some recognition. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what, what topics are you going to cover on next week's Radio oh, that's Parallax? That's right. Well, let's see. Uh, now that I'm uh, officially Radio Parallax's new host, uh, Doug, I'll invite you back and we'll talk about what's ahead for you. Hey, we've done that before <laughs> with Steve Valentino. That'll work great. Good enough.
He is, as we speak, uh, somewhere in Washington, D.C., doing what he can to uh, to improve the quality of news received by the Iranian people. But uh, but he's also our official taste tester here. Benjamin Jonas Keeling, thank you so much. And let's come back again. Thank you, Doug. It was a pleasure. It's a real thing in the back of your mind. What you're hoping to find is a real thing. It's a real thing. Coke is the way it should be. Coca-Cola. What the world wants to see. Oh, yeah. It's a real thing. Coca-Cola. People want to find life's good things. Coke has real life. See what real life can bring. the way it is with a bottle of coke and the way it will stay coca-cola what the world wants today oh yeah it's a real thing coca-cola is coke keep them doggies rolling hard through rain and wind and weather hell bent for leather wishing my gal was by my side like to start this segment by noting the passing of the man who sang that very memorable piece of music, Frankie Lane, described as the big voice singer whose string of hits made him one of the most popular entertainers of the 1950, died on February 7th at age 93. Frankie Lane was a regular feature of the top 10 in the years just before rock and roll ushered in a new era of popular music. Lane had numerous hits, including That's My Desire, Jezebel, I Believe, Mule Train, and That Lucky Old Son. But he may be best remembered for singing the theme to Rawhide, which ran from 1959 to 1966. Lane also did a memorable uh, rendition for the theme of the 1973 comedy classic Blazing Saddles. He apparently told Mel Brooks at one point, that's a beautiful song. Mel Brooks countered by noting that it, well, it's funny, but you know, it they both got it right. It's not a bad tune. He rode a blazing saddle. He wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned our Right, this is a little bit of science. At the end of last year, the Week magazine uh, referred to 2006 as the year where it was finally realized that global warming is real and that man is the cause. Somehow we don't think the opposition to this idea is going to go down uh, quite that easily. No sooner had Al Gore won an Oscar for his uh, documentary An Inconvenient Truth than the Tennessee Center for Policy Research described as an independent, nonprofit, and nonpartisan research organization committed to achieving a freer, more prosperous Tennessee through free market policy solutions, issued a press release <laughs> claiming that Al Gore's 20-room mansion in Nashville consumes more electricity each month than the average American household uses in an entire year. 
According to this group, Gore's natural gas bill is pretty exorbitant, too. What we want to know is how the Tennessee Center for Policy Research got a hold of Al Gore's utility bills. We're not sure that's a matter of public record. Do you think that how much you pay SMUD or PG&E should be available to anyone who wants to look it over? And, of course, the main thing about this is that if the Tennessee Center for Policy Research president, Drew Johnson, says, as a spokesman of choice for the global warming movement, Al Gore has to be willing to walk the walk, not just talk the talk when it comes to home energy use. And, of course, you know what that means, that all the evidence for global warming needs to be just thrown out the window because Al Gore apparently has a high energy bill. I want to thank uh, Don Rose for sending us uh, an email with that little item. And you may have noticed that the uh, European Space Agency's Rosetta Comet probe uh, just swung by Mars a couple days back. The Rosetta, in fact, zoomed just 150 miles above the Martian surface. Rosetta has already completed a, a swing by of the Earth, swinging back past Earth in 2005, and is using this Mars flyby to again swing past the Earth on November 13th to, uh, to slow it down to make an approach to the comet 67P churomayov gerasimenko in early 2014. This seems an awful, uh, awful circuitous route to go visit a comet, but uh, it saves immensely on the fuel you need to get to that comet. But what's most impressive about this mission right now is these stunningly beautiful photographs it took of the red planet, and we would suggest that you go look those up on the web. They really bring home um, sort of a hybridized view of what Mars looks like through a telescope and what it looks like through the space probes that go there to land on the red planet. really kind of bridges the gap. And in a bird flu update, we would note that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued guidelines for how we should deal with an influenza pandemic should one break out before a vaccine is available. The plan is basically as follows. Keep your kids home from school and don't go out into large public gatherings. You need to plan to do this for up to three months. And if you own a business, you need to prepare to operate with a skeleton crew. And uh, what else? Oh, yes, plan for losing some income during that time period. Yes, it's reassuring to know the government has a plan, which, as far as we can see, is pretty much the plan Radio Parallax presented to you last fall. Well, at least the government didn't suggest that you stock up on plastic wrap and duct tape without explaining what to do with it, which, as you'll recall, was their plan to how to deal with weapons of mass destruction back in 2003. But in other bird flu news that's even less reassuring, we have the following. According to New Scientist magazine, 20th of January, last April, a researcher at the University of Texas, Austin, put tubes into a centrifuge to separate out their contents, which included a human flu virus modified to carry a gene from the H5N1 bird flu. The centrifuge became unbalanced and stopped. And when the researcher opened it up, he found the lid of a safety cup holding one of the tubes had fallen off. Fearing that the tube inside had leaked, the researcher disinfected everything and called the lab's safety officers. He was wearing a protective hood and respirator, and the whole room was at negative pressure to prevent leaks. But the researcher had made one mistake. He opened the centrifuge and removed the samples without waiting the recommended 30 minutes to allow any virus-laden aerosol to settle. 
In fact, the tube was intact, but noted the magazine, if aerosol had escaped, the consequences would have been serious. Since, <laughs> serious to say the least, since the virus would have been able to infect humans with unknown effects. Such research has been criticized for creating unpredictable viruses that may never emerge naturally. Well, in truth, they are going to have to do some, uh, you know, some pretty heavy-duty research to come up with a vaccine, but this does give one pause. In some follow-up on last week's discussion of the world's worst dictators, we have a couple of items. Regarding the, uh, the Iran of the Ayatollah Khamenei, we note that U.S. officials keep referring to the fact that all options are on the table, which is code for saying, yes, we might use nuclear weapons against Iran. Some people in America are not deciphering the code, but it's pretty clear that people in Iran are. And uh, one would guess this is not providing motivation to the Iranians to slow down or stop their nuclear program. And if we'd had more time on last week's program, we would have liked to, liked very much to have discussed uh, the story of Zimbabwe with David Walachinsky. Robert Mugabe has been running that country since 1980. He turned 83 last week and uh, celebrated to the strains of a song called God Bless President Mugabe, which was aired on state-controlled radio. He also offered up an interview on state television. And uh, through a birthday bash, costly enough to feed thousands of people for months. Noted Michael Wines in the New York Times, Zimbabwe's economy is so dire that bread vanished from store shelves across the country last week after bakeries shut down, saying government price controls were requiring them to sell loaves at a loss. Robert Mugabe is ruining Zimbabwe. That's a topic we hope to return to uh, in the future. Unfortunately, we are uh, just about out of time for today's program. We just want to note in closing that if the Sacramento News and Review, a somewhat left-leaning paper, is in a complete agreement with Comstock's Magazine, a decidedly business-oriented publication, well, that's evidence that there's, uh, I think, a consensus of views on, on a given topic, and the topic in question is Natomas that area of urban sprawl spreading north of the city of Sacramento, in which, uh, by the way, city officials in Sacramento appear to be covering up their mistake by coming up with new flood zones and raising everybody's assessments, taxes you pay for being in a flood zone. We're going to quote from Comstock's magazine uh, next week on the show, because, like I say, we're running out of time, but, but we just want to note that an election will be held this year, wherein... <laughs> the person's vote is going to be weighted according to how much their flood taxes would increase. Who's doing the weighting and how much they're going to wait? Well, that, that's just not clear. But, uh, but all in all, we would say this is the kind of model election we would expect to see in the Republic of Zimbabwe. And if yes, that idea strikes you as being floridly crazy, well, <laughs> well join the club. Someday when a flood uh, of, of disastrous proportions, something on par with that of what happened uh, to New Orleans in the wake of Katrina, when something like that strikes Natomas, and we believe it's a matter of when rather than if, we hope that Heather Fargo and the Sacramento City Council and the people on the uh, Flood Control Board 
will still be around to answer all of our questions as to how they let this happen. We just want to close with one quote from the Comstock's Magazine article. In January, FEMA proposed designated the entire Natomas Basin in Sacramento and Sutter counties as a special flood hazard area, meaning the area has a 1% chance of flooding every year. Said Comstock's, now everyone from the federal government down to the man in the street is wondering who's going to pick up the $414 million price tag to repair the unstable levees. Well, it's a pretty good question. But of course, despite the specter of levee breaks, the building continues. We say if you own a business or home out in Natomas, uh, you know, uh, keep, <laughs> keep the address and phone number of the developer that sold you the property handy for the next, oh, 30 or 40 years. You know, you may just need it. Or, or at least your lawyer may need it. We will revisit that topic next week. That's it for today's show. We want to thank Kirsten Sanford for joining us, along with our good friend Benjamin Jonas Keeling. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. Keeps on